The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Father, from the testimony of this Japanese brother in the video that we watched at the beginning of the service, to this table and these marvelous songs, our attention has been pointed at you, your son, your gift to us in him. And now your word is to be proclaimed. Bless our pastor as he opens the pages and the heart of scripture to us today. For your sake, I ask this. Amen. You may be seated. John chapter 12 and verse 35 is where we pick up this morning. John twelve thirty-five. I have a confession to make. The word of God is living and powerful. Whether it's read from a big, beautiful Bible or an iPad. But I confess to being embarrassed to read scripture from a piece of paper. The public reading of scripture should be done from a big, beautiful Eight-pound, fifty-dollar calfskin gilt-edged Bible, but my fingers just don't work the good with those skinny pages anymore. So I got to read from this. I'm not happy about it, but I got to do it. John chapter twelve and verse thirty-five. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. That word, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For, and this is verse 43, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Isaiah 
saw glory. Heavy, weighty, drop you to your knees in awe and wonder and reverent fear. Melted like a puddle on the floor, undone, completely exposed to his sin in the presence of the holiness of God. And John reminds us of this Isaiah 6 encounter where Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple. There's no room for any other glory in the temple. Nothing else compares. Not even the seraphim. These as we might think, as, as glorious as we might imagine these angelic beings to be, they are better compared to slugs and worms to the holiness of God. Seraphim who were made exclusively for this purpose of being in the presence of God and declaring holy, holy, holy. That he is infinite in his holy perfection. These angelic beings made to be in God's presence, two wings in which to fly, two wings covering their creatureliness, their feet, two wings covering their faces, because who can look upon the holiness of God? They are made for this. This is what is described in Isaiah chapter 6. And this is what John has in mind as he quotes Isaiah and tells us that this vision of God, the King, is none other than Jesus in all of his glory. Overwhelmingly glorious, weighty, smoke fills the place. Its foundations are shaking at the voice of the angels declaring the holiness of God. And Isaiah's first words when exposed to this is, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And as you can, might imagine, Isaiah is never the same. And oh, that we would see Jesus and never be the same. John emphasizes this because all along, these Jews see Jesus and their reaction is not like Isaiah's. For Isaiah and for those who see and submit to King Jesus, there is mercy and grace. But for these Jews who are in the dark, there is a sad reality of judgment to come. And still, what are Jesus' final words, his final teaching here that we just read? It's an invitation to his glorious light. John wants us to see that Jesus is the one seated on the throne and he wants to give us a lesson about glory. 
What glory do you love? And if you love the glory of man more than the glory of God, then there is a sad judgment. For this person might see Jesus, but not really see him for who he truly is. Not believing what his glory communicates. There is a hardness of heart. These religious leaders didn't doubt the claims of Jesus. They knew that he really He really spoke to Lazarus and brought him from the dead. They knew that was true. They knew he healed the blind. They did not doubt. But they certainly rejected him. They saw the light of Christ, but they preferred the darkness of their own power and positions of authority. They wanted a lesser glory, a glory for themselves. And Jesus gives a warning to them. It's a warning that applies to many today. The light is among you for a little while longer. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. There's still time. The light is still here. Believe now. Don't put him off. Because it's going to get darker and darker And you're eventually going to be stumbling around in the dark. Jesus says, believe in me while the light, while I am still here. But let's be clear about belief. The Pharisees believed. James says, even the demons believe in God and shudder. Lots of people believe in Jesus, but not in a way that brings about salvation. People outside and even inside the church have a level of belief, but ultimately they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, and this is not salvation. And one day it'll be too late. The heart grows harder. The eyes that saw some truth in Jesus are now blind to him altogether. But Jesus is graciously giving one last appeal, one last invitation. And with this invitation, there is a terrible warning to not hesitate. You'd better not wait. You'd better not fool around with sinful worldly pleasures, thinking that one day after you've had your fun, maybe then it'll be time to really follow him. No, Jesus warns, saying, you'd better walk in the light now, because one day the darkness will overtake you, and there'll be no more opportunity. It'll be too late, and you'll be stumbling around in the darkness, the darkness that you're preferring right now. This is what Jesus says to the many unbelieving Jews of his day, and this is what he says to many people today. No more sitting on the fence, thinking that you can decide later. It's now. Or a day is coming when it will be never. And if any of you know that this is you, that you've been fooling around with whatever belief, with a belief that isn't really salvation, you better not wait. You'd better listen to Jesus and come to him now. 
For to wait, to reject the light, is to be plunged into greater darkness. Alexander McLaren writes, Rejected light is the parent of the densest darkness, and the man who, having the light, does not trust it, piles around himself thick clouds of obscurity and gloom, far more doleful and impenetrable than the twilight that glimmers round the men who have never known the daylight of revelation. Look at verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, when he offered the light of the gospel, he, he then departed and hid himself from them. The time comes for an unbeliever when the gospel is no longer available to believe. That that may be death, but it may also be a hardening of the heart. And like these Pharisees, this hardening comes when Jesus is done and he hides himself from you. Verse 37 tells us that though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. They, think of it, they of all people who knew the Scriptures, who lived in Jerusalem, who witnessed the miracles of Jesus, if they wouldn't believe, how is it that any believe? And some may wonder, did God somehow fail them? These people saw and believed that Jesus raised a dead man back to life. And with this in mind, we should ask, what does it take? What does it take for any to believe in Jesus? This is the question that John anticipates. And in verse 38, he explains, he explains their unbelief. John tells us that they did not believe so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John refers to Isaiah 53 as the reason for their unbelief. And sadly... This is what Jesus experienced from nearly everyone. With all of the teaching and all of his miracles, still he was rejected. So the point John is making is that this this same Old Testament prophecy that speaks of the cross about Jesus being lifted up and exalted, it also speaks of people's unbelief. They did not believe, John tells us, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Their unbelief was prophesied 700 years beforehand. And they are not believing now, so that this be fulfilled. And if you really think about this, it raises some questions, doesn't it? Because it sure seems that John is telling us that the reason the Pharisees and the Jews rejected Jesus was because it was foreordained in an earlier prophecy. And we choke on this. And we wonder, could this be right? 
that God would actually make it impossible for these people to believe? Some commentators who are evidently uncomfortable with this thought argue that John is not saying the Jews did not believe so that prophecy would be fulfilled, but instead that their unbelief simply resulted in the fulfillment of prophecy. And before you give the sigh of relief, whew, okay, let me point out that these commentators are putting words in John's mouth. No, their unbelief not only, yes, fulfilled prophecy, but John refers to the prophecy as the cause of their unbelief. God ordained it. Now let me just insert here that I love theological questions. And I love coffee, too. And if you have some questions about this, I would love to talk to you about it. Email me. Text me. We can have a dialogue via email. We can sit down over coffee. We can talk about all the questions related to this. And we can get into it. But for purposes of this sermon, let me just keep it simple by pointing out what John actually says. When John references Isaiah's complaint, what is his conclusion? Think of it. What is his conclusion in verse 39? Therefore, they could not believe. Look at the argument that John makes. Jesus did many signs. Still, they did not believe. They they didn't believe, so that prophecy would be fulfilled. Therefore... They could not believe. So did God fail to reach them? No. On the contrary, God's purposes were fulfilled. They were accomplished. And like Paul, in Romans 9, John seems to anticipate further questions. And so he says more, quoting again from Isaiah, this time Isaiah 6. Look at verses 39 and 40 in John 12, where he quotes, For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Who? Who? Who is the one acting to blind and harden people? God is. And what's the reason for him doing so? Lest they see, lest they understand and turn and be healed. John makes an argument, taking Isaiah's experience and applying it to this generation as well. In Isaiah 6, God commissioned Isaiah to go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah, go and make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah responded, to this vision of the Lord seated on the throne saying, Here am I. Send me. And this 
This is the preaching ministry that God gives to him. A preaching ministry designed to harden hearts and close ears and blind the eyes of Israel. And I just think, oh, Jonah, if he knew this, must have thought, if only God gave me this preaching ministry to those Ninevites. But Isaiah must have been, well... And now John refers to this. This is what John refers to as an explanation for the unbelieving Jews of his day. Isaiah preached judgment and now it was God's sovereign purpose to judge another generation by hardening them against the offer of the gospel. How are we to think of this? Again, I like questions. But for now, what are some things to consider that will help us understand God's hardening of the Jews? First, we need to see that their rejection of Jesus is a necessary part of God's sovereign plan for our salvation. It is a necessary part of God's sovereign plan for our salvation. It was God's purpose for Jesus to die on the cross so that we might be saved. And if the Jews did not reject him, then there would be no execution. And no cross means no sacrifice and no payment for our sins. So this rejection involves both the will of unbelieving Jews and the will of God. Peter preached in Acts 2 that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross and all that it brought about was the plan of God. He ordained it. It was His will. And yet Peter goes on to say to his Jewish hearers, you crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless men. It was the will of God and it was the will of these Jews. God brought it about, and these men are guilty for the evil work of their hands. And so what other conclusion is there? Since it was the eternal plan of God before the foundations of the world to have Jesus die as a sacrifice for our sins, then a part of his plan was to harden the hearts of the Jews, to bring it about. And in this mysterious truth, we see the definite sovereign plan of God bringing about His will. And yet this truth does not remove their guilt. This does not teach that they are robots programmed by God. No, Peter accuses his hearers of their actions and guilt, but he also ascribes what occurred to God's sovereign plan. And if we object to this, then we object to the very plan of God that brought about our redemption through the cross. And another aspect of this is to consider that the rejection of Jesus by the Jews is what brought about salvation to the Gentiles. All of you non-Jews out there, you have been grafted in as, a, as children of God because this rejection opened the doors of salvation to you. 
And yes, I understand that from our perspective, this just, this just doesn't seem, what, fair? And yet, this is what Scripture clearly says. Think of Isaiah. He received this commission from God to go and preach so that they would not understand. So that they would not see and hear and turn and be healed. Think of Isaiah being undone in the presence of the holiness of God in light of God's glory. Would it have occurred to him to question God? Did he say, you know, God, this just doesn't seem fair to me. (laughs) No way. Seeing the holiness of God, it, it tends to remove our arrogant challenges to whether or not God is being fair. When people see the glory of God, they are humbled and like Job, covered their mouths stop their accusations, and worship him. It did not occur to Isaiah to question the perfect wisdom of the Lord and his sovereign will with his puny, human, limited wisdom. And neither should I, and neither should you. But again, I really do like questions. So write me at pastorbrianbcc at gmail.com or text me. I love working through this. Ultimately, we are to submit to what God says in his word. A second thing to keep in mind concerning God hardening the Jews is that the gospel accomplishes two things. It gives life to all who believe and it brings judgment. It's like a double-edged sword. And it brings judgment to all who are hardened in unbelief. This is why Jesus gives a warning in verse 35. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. People who do not believe become more and more unable to believe. When people reject the grace of God, there is a blinding, a hardening effect. And eventually God will give them over to what they want, which is to walk in the dark. And so the gospel, the word of God, is a two-edged sword that positively gives grace and negatively conveys judgment. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A third truth to keep in mind is that this hardening of a person's heart is not merely a natural cause and effect process, but it is also God's judicial response to unbelief. J.C. Ryle said that God had given over the Jews to judicial blindness as a punishment for their long-continued and obstinate rejection of his warnings. So with this, there is a warning to our time as well. God does not change. And so those who think they can wait, those who want to spend some time enjoying their sin and then one day decide to settle down and 
follow Jesus, they should know that it will not get easier. That there is a hardening that occurs. And by a continual stubborn rejection of God's grace, He will give you over to it. Like these Jews, there may be there may come a time when it's actually impossible to believe. The rejection of Jesus is offensive to God. And at some point, He will give people over to themselves. The hour had come for Jesus to face the cross, and the time had come for these Jews, and it was too late for them to believe. So if anyone here, if anyone listening online has been putting off a commitment to Jesus. The time is now. Do not presume upon the grace of God. He may give you over to your unbelief and there may be a time when it's too late for you. The Apostle Paul pleaded, Behold, now is the favorable time Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day for the forgiveness of your sins. Look to Him as your only righteousness, which makes you acceptable to a holy God. And if you do, if you will know Jesus, you will know Jesus who is everlasting life. And if you do, you will have a hope that endures in every circumstance of life. If you seek God's grace and repent of your sins, you will find that your heart, instead of growing harder, grows more tender to the things of God. Things you didn't previously see and understand in God's Word will become more clear and precious to you. This is what Jesus does on a supernatural level. This is what we see in his many healings, not simply physical healings, but much more spiritual eyes that can now see, spiritual ears that can now hear the truth, hearts that had stopped and were dead in the tomb now come to life and follow him. So Jesus says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And following Jesus, believing in Him can be a great challenge. It can cost you your job, your friends, your family, your pride in many areas of life. We see this in verse 42. Many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Believing in Jesus gives you hope for any circumstance. It brings true and lasting joy, but it also creates a challenge in life. For these Jews to be cast out of the synagogue, it was the same as being cast out of Jewish society. It was a big deal. There was this inner conflict going on. They believed in Jesus, but, but they knew what the Pharisees would do to them because of their unbelief. 
And with this inner conflict, we think of Jesus' words in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Christ demands that we not be secret disciples. A true believer must have a public faith that values Christ more than hard circumstances. If we're ashamed of Him, if we hide our faith because of the hard consequences, then our relationship to Jesus is in in question. So John tells us that some did not confess their belief in Jesus, and he tells us the ultimate reason in verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What do you love? Why do we willingly choose to sin? Because in the moment, we love sin more than we love God. Why do we hesitate to talk about Jesus? Because we love the glory that comes from man. We love what people think of us more than we love the glory that comes from God. And we might think that the, you know, the solution might be, I just need to be stronger and bolder. I need to not care what people think. I need to just stand for what is true, what is right. And this sounds good, but it's not enough. Yes, it's part of the answer, but not all of it. The answer, here's the answer. Glory. How do we value obedience to God's will more than the pleasure of sin? Why would we confess and share Jesus even if we know people will think we're a stupid fool or wrongly think that we're some kind of bigot? Think of Isaiah. Think of what he saw. The Lord seated on the throne. Glory. The weightiness. The incomparable worth and might and beauty and greatness of God. And with this in mind, Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Even if I go and preach to a people who will not listen, who won't understand, who don't love the message, who aren't thinking highly of me and singing my praises. Send me. Again, why would Isaiah do this? Why would he go? Answer? Because he saw the glory of Christ. The weightiness. The holiness of Christ. Nothing else compared. Nothing came close. He was completely in awe of him. No longer in awe or in fear of the world. And if this is not true of us, if we're unwilling to follow, then then what's the only possible conclusion? It must be that we have not seen what Isaiah saw. And because we don't see Christ's glory, we're more concerned 
with our lifestyle, with our comforts, with what people think of us. So if you think theology is boring and irrelevant, think again. Because our greatest, most practical need for living as followers of Jesus is that we see the glory of Christ seated on the throne. Concerning this, J.C. Ryle wrote, the expulsive power of a new principle making us see God, Christ, heaven, hell, judgment, eternity as realities. Theology is the grand secret of getting the victory over the fear of man. And maybe you're thinking, well, if I saw what Isaiah did, if I had that kind of direct revelation, then yeah, I can imagine that would make a difference, but I haven't. Oh, but the vision is there for us to see. We see it in the revelation God has given to us, which is his word. And he has given us his spirit to open our eyes to see glorious things in the Bible. Peter, who admittedly saw and said that he was greatly privileged to witness the visible display of Christ's glory, he insists we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Think also of the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. What was the highlight? What did they emphasize? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This is the glory God has given for us to see. And when the Bible becomes this for us, when we see Jesus for who he truly is, then we're not going to fear what man might do. And the competing pleasures of sin in this world, they will fade in comparison to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. O oh God, revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, we confess that you are sovereign over all. And because of your promise, we ask with absolute confidence for you to increase our faith and grow our love for you. Thank you for the person of Jesus, who is light in a dark world, who is the radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Father, for any listening who do not yet know you, we ask that you would speak light into their hearts so that they might see your glory in the face of Jesus. Lord, compel them to no longer wait and to come before it's too late. 
Oh, Father, and for those of us who know you and struggle with sin and the fear of man, for the, for the days ahead that may be all the more difficult as disciples of Jesus. Lord, may your spirit open our eyes to the glory of Christ in your word. Show us glorious things in Scripture, truths that dispel any competing pleasure, any fear of man. Grow us and use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord open your eyes that you may behold wondrous things in his word. And because of this, may he consume your soul with a longing to do his will. God bless you. So good to be together. I hope you'll stay and and visit some and uh, look forward to visiting with you and maybe getting an email, maybe grabbing some coffee. Take me up on that. God bless you.